0: Hi everyone, I'm Erin G and this is Alt Text. Happy New Year. I hope everyone had a nice holiday season and that you all were able to spend some time away from the demands of your inboxes. This week, I'm joined by Allison Gackab, a reporter with Carbon Pulse, a newsletter on carbon markets, greenhouse gas pricing, and climate policy. Prior to Carbon Pulse, Allison was a reporter with the Vancouver Tech Journal, where she wrote about climate tech. At Car Impulse, however, Allison covers market based mechanisms as solutions for climate change, including cap and trade programs and voluntary carbon credits. She's also interested in the ways technology intersects with politics and capital. Allison was recently in Dubai for COP28, the UN Global Climate Policy Summit, and we chatted about her experience covering COP the differences between tech and climate conferences, and the outcomes from the meeting of global minds. So here's my conversation with Allison Gackad. Okay, Allison, thank you so much for joining me for this, what I hope is going to be a really interesting and informative conversation.
1: Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Erin. And so you
0: were recently at COP, which is the Committee of Parties?
1: Yeah, yeah, Conference of Parties.
0: The Conference of Parties. And that's a climate change conference. And it was held in the Middle East, in the United Arab Emirates. And so you were there reporting, and you were there for the full conference what was that like
1: yeah yeah it was quite the spectacle and i think the best way to describe cop is there there are two elements to it there's the policy making element of it which is really the core function of cop uh 1992, there were nearly like 200 members of the UN who agreed that we need to stop climate change. And that was in 1992 when COP started as kind of a way for all of these member parties to assess our progress in terms of how we stop climate change. And clearly, spoiler alert, we haven't. <laughs> it's called COP28 because there have been 28 of these conferences. And uh, a core outcome for this policymaking component of COP is to assess how we're doing in terms of taking on climate action. And so that's one component of COP. And that takes up the majority of the two weeks in terms of these nearly 200 parties uh, represent pretty much 200 countries. uh, And they have their negotiators who come out and really represent the interests of their countries. And for those two weeks, they're having meetings with each other and they're trying to come to conclusions in terms of, how are we going to address climate change? And so that's one component of COP. And the other component of COP that's really interesting and is starting to overshadow this policymaking aspect of COP is the trade show element to it. And, and the reason why there's a trade show element to it is because if you're not a policymaker, but you're still involved in the climate space you want to be at COP because you recognize that this is the one time a year where anybody who's working on climate change is going to be physically present and talking about climate change and advancing climate solutions. So as much as there are policymakers that are coming up with outcomes in terms of how we're going to tackle climate change, the trade show element kind of came about because all of these people who aren't policy makers, let's say you're members of civil society or you're members of industry, you recognize that the outcomes of the policy making are going to affect you too. And so people show up to this trade show element of COP because you want to be there to represent your own interests, whether you're an activist, whether you're a member of industry. And so you have quite you have all of this energy across the two weeks um, and it's it's a pretty pretty long exhausting process to be quite frank especially as a journalist because You're covering, uh, from my perspective, yes, I'm covering the policymaking aspect of it. um, But I'm also kind of looking on the periphery, on the sidelines of who's showing up to this trade show element of it, which industries are present, which activists are present, uh, who's being listened to and who's not. And especially that being in the Middle East, there's there's going to be a very specific concentration of, of who's showing up and who isn't. And
0: at the trade show, did you find that there were any kind of themes, given that you were in the Middle East, uh, in terms of what people were trying to communicate or sell?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And it's interesting because I think that this COP is where you you saw those lines kind of blur between policymaking and trade show. Um, Every COP that happens, there's an elected president, and that president essentially sets sets the trajectory for how COP is going to go. And this year's COP is hosted in the UAE, and the president is also the executive of the National Oil Company. And so you can see how there's a very clear... Um, blurring of the lines between what does it mean to represent industry interests, but also what does it mean to advance international, negotiation, international negotiations on climate change? And so this was the first COP where fossil fuels played a, a pretty discreet role in terms of uh, there were members of the industry that were personally invited by the UAE to be there as part of uh, the the policymaking process, uh, and there were also, and this is the first time in years that that had happened that mm-hmm. it, it's happened. And so, I think this COP was interesting because you saw the blurring of the lines where the the lobbyists were present in in numbers never seen before. There was an analysis that was done, I think. A, calculated nearly 4,000 fossil fuel lobbyists that were present wow. and that's it sets a tone for for what uh, a conference on climate change is going to discuss and address mm-hmm. when there's that much industry involved.
0: Right yeah and I think it, it really goes to show um, the the interconnected nature of the two industries and why I think we you know Started out with these grand ideas of combating climate change, and now it's kind of just like, oh well, uh, we've kind of like created all of these exceptions because of these lobbyists.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think it there are two kind of opinions as to the role of fossil fuels when it comes to COP and their place at the conference, where people said this this COP was particularly history making because it actually addressed the role of fossil fuels. It's taken 28 years for policymakers to say, hey, we need to transition away from fossil fuels. And some people are saying that it's because it happened in the UAE and it's because the fossil fuel industry was present. And it's because those interests were present that uh, negotiators were able to come to those conclusions. But at the same time, on the other side of the coin, you're hearing a lot of activists in civil society saying that industry is going to advance their interests. And as much as it's going to be transition away from fossil fuels, they're still interested in prolonging the, the lifespan of their industry. So it's, I think being a journalist is interesting because you're, especially being at COP for two weeks, you see all of these dynamics play out in really intense heated debates, but also themes that are strung out across the two weeks of negotiations that are happening. And
0: so prior to reporting on climate change you were writing about tech. And so I know that you've also been at a few tech conferences. And so and the, which have also had kind of a trade show component. Is there any kind of similarities between the two or is it very different?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think that when I think about the function of COP versus the function of a tech conference, it's it's quite different in terms of COP was designed to have all of these countries come together and agree to output a specific document that outlines how we're going to tackle climate change. Whereas for tech conferences, that isn't necessarily the case. But I think that where I am starting to see convergence is in the spirit of entrepreneurism, uh, entrepreneurialism (laughs) that's coming out uh, at COP that that really is quite prevalent at tech conferences. So when I was working as a tech journalist, what I found really cool is that people were working on so many interesting novel and creative ideas, um, and you didn't necessarily need to be connected to a particular political entity or government or Anything of that nature to be present at a tech conference. You could just show up as yourself, as your company. And at COP, when it first started, It was really just policymakers, but I think because climate change has evolved into such a complex issue, you're now seeing a lot of entrepreneurs come out and you're now seeing a lot of startups come out with that same energy of, yeah, you don't necessarily need to be affiliated with with a political entity to be able to show up at COP. You can talk about what kind of solutions you're advancing and you can talk about and connect with other entrepreneurs in the same way that you would at, at a tech conference. And so are there
0: a lot of like general attendees at COP or is it more primary, like the bulk of people, politicians and lobbyists and decision, quote unquote, decision makers?
1: Yeah, the structure of COP is interesting because there are two uh, regions and it correlates as well with the policymaking and the trade show. There's something called the blue zone, which is only for accredited UN entities and journalists and civil society and there's the green zone which is more for the general public and so mm-hmm. the bulk of majority actually happened sorry the bulk of population actually happens in the green zone because it's a general public this year I think um or actually no I think it's the other way around because this year cops saw like 100,000 attendees which is the largest it's ever oh, seen wow. and it was seventy thousand, I want to say, in the blue zone, and thirty thousand in the green zone. But you may have to fact check me. <laughs> um, but there, there is a significant public population that comes out to the green zone just to kind of check out, like what what people are doing in climate, uh, what solutions look like, especially in the UAE. Uh, so it's it's a population that very much is growing.
0: But let's get into like the more nerdy part. So I think a lot of listeners will know, will have heard about the Paris Climate Agreement, which came out of COP several years ago. But since then, we haven't really kind of had the same uh, public consensus or knowledge or understanding of what has kind of come out of any COP kind of after that. And I know that like I personally have seen a lot of media around this year's outcomes, but do you have any sense of like why that might have might why that might be the case?
1: In terms of, I guess, why since the Paris Agreement it seemed kind yeah. of quiet or stagnant. Yeah, I think that well, the Paris Agreement was such a landmark agreement where for the first time you had this legally binding international treaty that countries had to uphold. And that treaty being that hey, we we can't increase our global temperature increase beyond two degrees Celsius. We have to do everything we can to try and prevent that. Um, And I think the reason why things have been so quiet since Paris is because the only way that you can really address that temperature increase is by addressing the root cause of climate change. And if the root cause of climate change is the fact that we're burning fossil fuels, which emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which then increase our temperature, then you can start talking about uh, what we need to do to reduce to to not get us beyond that two degrees. And I feel like the fact of the matter is that it's just because it's taken us so long to just have fossil fuels uh, recognized as mm-hmm. as uh, the the reason for climate change. And, and even so- then, it's
0: still not you know
1: consensus. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what was fascinating about the outcome of this COP is because the final language that was agreed on was like a transition away from fossil fuels. And what does that even mean, right? There Mm -hmm. are so many uh, kind of ways that you could interpret that phrasing in terms of, is it a fast transition? It is a slow transition. uh, What kind of fossil fuels are we talking about? And so now I think what will be really interesting to follow is we had the Paris Agreement and we had this year where we we we've finally acknowledged fossil fuels role in the climate crisis. Where do we go from here? And, mm-hmm. and what does action really look like?
0: So I guess it sounds like maybe we kind of had a goal without really identifying the solution Versus from Paris to now. And then over the last, I guess, six to seven years, we've kind of finally agreed or are willing to acknowledge the fact of the role that fossil fuels play. And so now, seven years later, uh, we're like, okay, well, like, maybe we should finally start to do something. Is that kind of what the, it seems like is going on?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment. I mean, in those seven years, there have been kind of parallel investments and, and texts that have agreed on that relate to things like increasing renewable energy and phasing away from coal um things that allow us to look for substitutes in many of our existing industries that will allow us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions um but really when you think about the the yeah like the core underpinning is that we need to figure out the how we get away from fossil fuels and i think that'll be kind of like the biggest biggest challenge and biggest question for the next few years and next few decades to come of what what our world is going to look like in this transition away. And
0: so we've now agreed that you know COP 28 we're going to transition away and I know that there was a lot of the language around this was very contentious and you know the the conference was actually extended by a day or two because of the negotiations around this language. Can you get into that a bit?
1: Yeah, yeah. So in the last week, I say, I'd say i say of the conference, maybe even the last five days is when you really see a lot of momentum from the negotiating parties where they start to release like a draft text. They kind of release it and they say, hey, let's put out some feelers, see how people are responding to this. And the first draft text didn't even include uh mention of fossil fuels. And that sent so many countries absolutely livid
0: mm-hmm. because
1: they are saying it's been, yeah, since the Paris Agreement, people were expecting we're in the UAE, we're going to at least talk about it. How mm-hmm. can there be no mention of fossil fuels? And then they go back to the drawing board and try to come up with new language. And the new language for the longest time was, was the difference between either a phase out or a phase down of fossil fuels. And that was interesting because one of them alludes to essentially a removal of an industry, right? It's when you're saying a phase phase out of fossil fuels, you're alluding to a future where fossil fuels don't even exist. Whereas when you're looking at a phase down of fossil fuels, you're looking at a future where fossil fuels will still exist, but perhaps in a smaller capacity. Mm-hmm. And so people were fighting back and forth around that. should be phase out or should be phased down. And you can imagine that obviously some countries such as opac so the the organization of petroleum exporting countries were obviously on the side of we need to phase down fossil fuels because we're, our countries and our economies rely on this we don't want to live in a world where that doesn't exist anymore versus other countries such as small island developing states uh, who are very clearly sinking because of climate change and whose livelihoods are at risk are saying that we need to see a phase out of fossil fuels. We're not responsible for climate change. And if fossil fuels are responsible for climate change, we need to see a world where that doesn't exist anymore or else we don't exist. And that neither of that language ended up even being adopted. Eventually, what ended up being adopted, as as you saw in the final text, was A transition away from fossil fuels, which in my opinion, leans closer to kind of that phase down language. And, and I I really think that's a concession to the fact that so many countries and around our world just are fossil fuel producing countries and whether they're exporters or uh, whether they're um, whether they're importers, uh, so many countries rely on, on fossil fuels to power livelihoods and power economies and it's it's a daunting kind of i guess uh, act to to say that we need to phase out this industry entirely
0: yeah i think it's it's challenging you know and as canada is a country that relies not necessarily solely on fossil fuels but on um resource extraction and you know it's our main part of the economy. And so like, how do you tell a country that their main source of economic output is not valuable? And so, you know, trying to balance the, the real costs of fossil fuels versus, you know, countries not being able to have economic output or being really impacted without it, you know, that's a, that's a tough challenge. That's a challenge. I would not like personally
1: (laughs) it's hard and you really see how it shows up in how these countries show up to COP so for example yeah as you mentioned Canada relies on on fossil fuels and resource extraction just as much as the U.S. does and Norway and and OPEC to a greater degree and so you see countries like Canada and the U.S. come to COP and very much advance progressive climate policy in the sense that Canada showed up to COP and our federal environment minister, Stephen Dubois said, we're going to put a cap on the amount of emissions that the oil and gas industry is going to produce. And that's great climate policy. And that's really progressive because that's acknowledging that the oil and gas industry, the fossil fuel industry, can't just be spewing emissions (laughs) infinitely. It needs to stop. Uh, But at the same time, it's stated in that policy that, yes, there's a cap, but this cap is also designed to be able to enhance continued production of fossil fuels. So countries such as the US and Canada who who do rely on on fossil fuels as as, uh, a primary contributor to these economies will put forward these progressive climate policies, but at the same time acknowledge that the continued uh, proliferation of these industries is essential to the economic well-being. And it's at COP, it's it can be easy to be blinded by by how progressive some of these announcements are and and the initiatives that countries are putting out. But at the end of the day, it's important to kind of take a step back and, and realize that these are fossil fuel producing and exporting economies. Mm-hmm. And these countries very much have an interest in, in continuing that. And so finding that middle ground, as you said, is a hard job because, because we live in a world where our climate is changing. And so measures like this oil and gas cap need to be put forward uh, to be able to slow down these emissions. But at the same time, it's it's the yeah, we all like I I drive a I drive a gasoline-fueled car. And even yeah. when we take public transit, it's all not necessarily electrified. So it's difficult. <laughs> For sure.
0: And you know, then you get the, the complicating factor of developed nations versus developing nations, and you know, transitioning away when you're still developing your economy is challenging because it's so expensive and if you don't have the infrastructure um, both in terms of like productivity and um, the technology then like yeah it's even more challenging.
1: Yeah I'm really glad you brought that up because it reminds me of I was just kind of walking around the conference venue and it was in the heat of these final negotiating texts that were coming up and I just struck up a conversation with somebody in line with me to go get lunch. And he was a negotiator from Oman in Africa. And Oman is a fossil fuel producing country. They're not part of OPEC, but it's very much a a strong contributor to their economy. And I asked them, I I was like, how do you feel about the negotiating text that comes out? And he said very clearly and very plainly, he said, sister, we want justice. Mm -hmm. We're in a place where... Countries such as the US and Canada, he very explicitly named (laughs) these countries, Mm -hmm. are calling on countries such as us to not produce fossil fuels and not extract fossil fuels, but that isn't fair. And I think that put quite succinctly, uh, at least for me, it clarified the importance of of congregations such as the UN and and COP and being able to bring these voices together to the table because it's not everyday in general media and general discourse that the voices of a country like Oman are equal the same weight as the voices from a country such as the US and in the UN that's how it works and arguably that's a that's a reason for a lot of the stagnation too right in order for the kind of output negotiating text to come to a conclusion, it needs to reach a two thirds majority. And if every country has one vote, it can take a long time to get to that majority. But at the same time, that is where you see small island developing states like Fiji, like Tonga and and OPEC states and the US and Canada and and other Western countries um, kind of have similar weight to to what they're saying uh, when it comes to the UN.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's a good exercise in understanding how policymaking and politics work, right? You know, in a conversation you and I had earlier, you said that COP is a lot of political theater. And so, you know, having everyone with an equal voice, you can see how that happens and how some people are posturing maybe one side. But I think that, you know, a lot of activists, I think, were disappointed by the outcome of COP. But at the same time, you know, we've talked about the economic impacts of like, to OPEC countries, the impacts on these small island developing nations, and then other countries that are still developing. And, you know, I think the left and the right both really want these extreme versions of something. But really, the only way to like, get there is through incremental progress, I mean, regardless of what side you're on, but like to go all of a sudden one way or the other has a lot of other complications that I think people are blind to, and they just don't don't see because they don't understand the kind of the butterfly effects of like these small changes.
1: Yeah, I think you put that really well, because at the end of the day, a lot of people say that we already have the solutions to climate change, and they already exist. And it's a matter of scaling up. But climate change is a very technical problem. It's incredibly difficult to transition our our industries away from fossil fuels. And it's incredibly difficult to figure out how we're going to capture carbon dioxide from the sky and put it underground and put it somewhere else. And sure, we have the solutions. But I think the, the politics and the theater of it is perhaps to an extent necessary to try and figure out how exactly those solutions are gonna be put into place. And and then there's a whole other lens to it where you think about uh, who has the authority to advance particular solutions Mm. and who has the finances to be able to do that. And as you mentioned with the dynamic between uh, developed countries and developing countries, what What constitutes the right for a country to continue continue extracting fossil fuels versus not? Mm-hmm. And who gets the blame? And, yeah, i I think one thing that that's always um that I really appreciate from uh, the non kind of economic and aspects of thinking about climate change and thinking more about uh, its intersection with climate justice is thinking about how it intersects with with gender as well and and mm-hmm. class. And, and so, yeah, cough is just, it's such a swirling kind of storm of (laughs) all of these elements in one space.
0: Yeah, climates, yeah, just such a a crazy complex topic that I think we just don't give enough credit to most people. Uh, And then like even politically in Canada, you know, uh, the carbon tax is under a lot of you know, there are a lot of issues with that. And so like, you know, as much as COP struggled and finally landed on language, even domestically, like we're still having trouble.
1: Yeah. And I think that's what's quite difficult about employing um, climate policy that's tied to our economics in that it's very easy to conflate and we saw this with carbon pricing. It's very easy to conflate increasing unaffordability with a carbon tax, for example. Yeah. And that's difficult because when, if public perception is that life is more expensive because we're trying to stop climate change, well, why should we bother stopping climate change now if I can't even afford to live on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. So there's there's now this, not not only the the technical issue of solving climate change, but also a communications issue of how do you actually communicate to the general public that, yes, there's a carbon tax, but the rebates that you get from the carbon tax actually outweigh how much you pay in terms of the carbon tax um, provincially and federally. Mm-hmm. And so- it's, it's difficult because uh, so many of these climate policies that, that Canada has put into place have been under a liberal government and with increasing public uncertainty around the relationship between affordability and climate, uh, all of these climate policies are very much at risk of being undone by a change in government. And I think that's something that many, many policymakers, especially in Canada, are quite fearful of uh, in terms of we've spent the past number of years researching and consulting and putting, trying to put these policies into action. And then with a flick of a switch, it can all just kind of be upturned in an instant. And so there is a little bit of that fickle nature to climate policy in that it, it relies on, on political longevity. And so when you're talking about on the left and the right, how, uh, people perhaps want different universes. Uh, the real struggle for climate policy is how do you find something that's that's in between that can withstand a change in political government? And a really interesting example of this is actually in the US where uh, Joe Biden put forward the Inflation Reduction Act. And one of its biggest are the states that are actually the biggest users of the inflation reduction act in terms of renewable energy and tax credits are actually red states mm-hmm. it's texas and that's something that surprises a lot of people uh, but i think it's really an uh, an example of, of effective climate policy where you're able to be uh, agnostic of of perhaps political uh political leanings and really be able to support solutions that that not just satisfy Uh, Our needs to lower greenhouse gas emissions, but also produce jobs, but also ensure that it's not disproportionately harming underprivileged communities, et cetera, et cetera. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, Sounds so easy. (laughs) You were in the UAE for two weeks. So what was that like?
1: Yeah, it was, I think, going into it, um, I wasn't really sure what to expect I knew that Dubai was very much this shiny, big, glitzy city, but I wasn't expecting it to have had so much sprawl. Uh, my colleagues and I joked that Dubai feels like a dirt park <laughs> city <laughs> because you have these massive, beautiful, glamorous buildings like the mm-hmm. Bridge Khalifa and so many other high rises and complexes, uh, but in between those really impressive patches of skyscrapers are patches of desert (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it it humbles you because you you realize that this city was constructed out of the desert there's there's no fresh water uh Mm -hmm. vegetation is quite limited uh the city was essentially built on the backs of migrant labor and so when you're in that environment for two weeks uh it, it made me realize I, yeah, I have to give credit to the country for being able to build something so impressive out of sand <laughs> And obviously there, there are a lot of uh, qualms with how that was done in terms of labor rights and wages and, and resource extraction and whatnot. Uh, but it is quite surreal to, to be in, in a city that, um, in a city and in a country that is so limited with natural resources to see, what can be built when you have a lot of capital to, to back you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So last question, what are your kind of personal and professional takeaways from your experience at COP?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Uh, personal and professional takeaways. I guess personally, I came to the conclusion that COP is good <laughs> <And it's- laughs> In it's most basic essence. I think that I initially had a little bit of skepticism around, is it necessarily for this many people to come out? Do we have to have all of these countries arguing over semicolons and and small, minute words of text to come to conclusions? And there are still elements of that that, that I'm unsettled with and don't necessarily agree with. But I the, the reason why personally... I've come to the conclusion that it's good is because it's the one forum where once a year, as I mentioned, that voices are able to have a say on the climate crisis that we typically don't see on a day-to-day basis. It's where small island developing states are able to explicitly call out the US and other fossil fuel producing nations uh, for climate harms and climate damages that are taking place. And it's also the place where Finances can be funneled to these small island developing states to help them adapt to climate change. So I think it's good in in being able to be that that central forum for all of this uh, political performance and action and 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 outcomes to take place. And I think when I think professionally about COP and when I think about uh, coverage of of COP as a journalist one line or I guess one thread of, of, of one theme that I'm trying, that I'm very curious to follow is this continued blurring between the policymaking and the trade show mm-hmm. element pop. I think increasingly as we're seeing that climate change and it would be naive to think that climate change is just an issue of save the trees, save the environment. Mm-hmm. It's not. We've had a whole conversation about how it's intricately tied to our economies and our livelihoods. And so, with an increasing uh, global recognition of that fact, what kind of players and who are we going to see at the table at COP? This year, we saw a lot of the fossil fuel industry. I'm anticipating that we're going to see a lot of other members of other industries too, like the cement industry and the steel industry. Um, electricity, even, for example. And so professionally, I'm curious to see how those intersections are going to play out between the policy that comes out of, of these conferences and the industries that are profoundly affected by the policy that comes out of these conferences. And from the perspective of, of being able to, to write about uh, those intersections, I think And yeah, in these next few years, as we try to tackle this central phrasing of a transition away from fossil fuels, what that looks like is going to be fascinating.
0: (laughs) Well, Allison, thanks so much. This was really interesting. I had a great time.
1: Thanks, Erin. Yeah, I really ran the gamut there. So (laughs) thanks for having (laughs) me and chatting with me.
0: (laughs) That does it for this week. A huge thanks to Allison for joining me. I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, you can find me on social media.